there are so many stories in there that are still our stories. Yeah. Like even the stories of, of trauma that we're talking about, about David and Bathsheba or about David's kid Tamar who's raped by our brother. Like these are stories that are still happening that could really connect with us and help even show us like, how do we walk with somebody through trauma and healing? Right. You know, right. These are the places that we have the opportunity to speak into, to show like, where was God in this? Where do I still find hope in this? Um, and those aren't the stories that we're telling. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 10 of Dig New Streams. My name's Dave Capozzi. I'm your host. And this week on the podcast, we have Kerry Lewis. Kerry is the associate pastor at Keene Church of the Nazarene in New Hampshire. Kerry and I went to college together at Eastern Nazarene College. Uh, somewhere around 20 years ago at this point. Uh, and Carrie got her master's in the Hebrew Bible at the same seminary that I went to in Boston. And it was just a really fun conversation and honestly really enlightening. With Carrie, we got to talk about what is one of my favorite subjects, um, the Bible and the way that it's been used to manipulate and hurt people and subjugate women in particular, um, I love talking about these things because I love getting to what the authors of the text uh, likely meant instead of what these texts have been used for. So Carrie, uh, with her knowledge of the Hebrew Bible, brings a lot of interesting information that I think will be interesting to just about anyone, not just Bible nerds like Carrie and myself. To this point on the podcast, I have had people that not only I respect and have great admiration for, but people from a variety of backgrounds and traditions. And that has been very intentional because the point of the podcast is to introduce folks to new, maybe different perspectives that come from what you might think are familiar traditions. Uh, so... When I have people on the podcast that are pastors or rabbis or community organizers, they're all coming with their own vantage point, their own unique spin, people that have been through quite a lot and are seeking a more just, compassionate, and loving world. Um, that is what I long for. That is what this podcast is about. And I hope it will be a source of light and inspire whoever listens to a deeper conversation about any of these topics, whether you agree with the perspective or the religion of the person that is on the podcast or not. All right. Well, thank you for listening to that 10th episode reflection. Uh, as always, if you want to keep up with the podcast, you can follow on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, uh, at Dig New Streams Podcast. Uh, and without further ado, my conversation with Carrie Lewis. I was talking to my kids yesterday about Sodom and Gomorrah mm. uh, because uh, some people in their life tell them that it's a story about homosexuality and how God condemns it. And I was like, well, that's not really the way that it is. <laughs> no. and I, I was like, that's a perspective that people have. I would say that it's not grounded in what the reality of the story is. 
I also, from my perspective, always tell my kids, it also is a matter of how you view the Bible and what you see, what you see its purpose as. Um, and if you are using the Bible to create a set of proof texts to prove this or that thing is good or bad, then I think that maybe you've learned the inappropriate use of that text. You know, and that really, that really like growing up, I think I was taught that the Bible is self exegeting, right? That you can just open it up, read a story and know what it says and means. Yes. And that's a good example of that. Like in the English translation, if me in my current 21st century context, read it, <laughs> I can read in some of those themes, yes. but it's when you start digging in that you're like, I'm not sure that that's what that meant. Or you start looking at some of the terms in the language, right? Like that what we see in our, from our context, is not really what was happening there. And wasn't what was meant for the hearers of the story originally. Right. I, I wonder if one of the things that we both probably were taught as kids growing up in our various, you know, Christian contexts was like a hum, a humble approach to the scriptures, you know, letting them sort of shed light. I, I have found that that's the opposite of what folks do. <laughs> there's less of, there's this arrogance that comes with, well, I know the Bible's, I know the Bible and it says this rather than letting it be what it is from the time that it's from, you know, and, and searching that out. Cause we can't fathom the mind of the people that we're hearing it, we're writing it. We just can't. Uh, I think that's why it's convenient to say, well, God basically mm -hmm. dropped it in people's heads. Um, but, you know, I, I think that's dangerous. <laughs> I think it's proven to be dangerous over the years. So, you know, what, one of the things that I thought was so cool about the last conversation we had is you were talking about the, these stories in a context that not everyone hears, you know, I studied particular things, but there's so much in the Bible that you can't touch maybe in a lifetime. And I love that because of your focus as someone who's had to struggle as a woman in ministry in the church to like advocate for yourself as a valid pastor or, or, or minister, you've been able to look through the scriptures through that lens. And that to me was like really eye opening. you know, so what was the one we were talking that you were mentioning last week? Who was the, oh, yeah, we did a, a series, a sermon series on women in scripture. So I picked um, the rape of Tamar by her half brother yes. from, yeah, from second Samuel 13. Yes. Right, right, right. The rape of a half that by her half-brother yes yeah so but it's one of david's kids yeah <laughs> such a messed up story david who's like this hero of the faith yes has this really twisted family a lot of sexual trauma and history that like carries on like you can see the ripple effects of yes. his decisions and how it impacts his kids yeah i mean that that's a really interesting thing to bring up though because david is a hero right I, I don't know about you, but I was, I was told David was beloved by God and basically his character was one to emulate. Right. And then you see, well, again, I mean, the story of him and Bathsheba, if you back up further in second Samuel, right? So um, I was taught like Bathsheba's out on the rooftop and she's tempting this guy, like she wants it. She's asking for it. Yes. But again, looking at the scripture in the context. So the story starts rolling out um, and it says like, it's springtime. It's the time where the King's go out with their armies into battle, but David is back at his temple. So you already see like, who's in the wrong place. It's David. David's supposed to be with his army. Right. He's the one who's being lazy, just wandering the rooftop when he's supposed to be with his people. Right. And he looks out and then you see, there's actually a lot of, um, 
parallels in the scripture to Genesis three in the fall account, right? So yeah, so this is what's interesting in the pattern there. So you see like David sees her, he calls her good, even though she's off limits, and then he takes her. So if you go back to Genesis three in the fall, you see the same thing with Eve. So Eve looks at the fruit, she calls good what God has called off limits, and she takes it. And this pattern happens a lot in scripture. Wow. like, again, like that's what an original hearer of the story would have been like, wait a minute, I've heard this before. Yes, like, right. This isn't good. So he sees her, judges her good, even though she he knows she's off limits, she's somebody else's wife and takes her. And like, that's rape. That's what yes. occurred there. Right. Um, but again, we brush it off or we try to blame her. Yes. 100%. Or we try to cover it up. Yeah. Right. That's really interesting. Judge it, seeing something, judging it as good and taking it. I wonder how much, uh, what that meant for them at the time, because if it's a consistent theme, there's something about their society that required that point to be made over and over again, right? Right, like God said something's off limits, but when you start to make your own judgments about it, that's when sin starts to enter in. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so this actually, in my own mind, this brings up some things that are so problematic. (laughs) I there are concepts that, you know, people take out of the Bible and they say, well, then God calls it good or bad. Right. And that's where it becomes a really difficult thing where you become labeled conservative or liberal Mm -hmm. based on whichever one you choose to select. And one of the things that I've come to see is the reality that literally every human being picks and chooses what they uh, like or embrace from the scriptures or from anything that they read. Do you have any thoughts on that? Is that something that you've noticed? And what, yeah, what do you, how does that play out maybe when you're talking to people as a pastor? That even like we were talking about before, that's one of the most dangerous things I think about Christians. Like um, this morning, I actually, I preached on Psalm one, which is about meditating on scripture day and night. It's like, if we really believe that all scriptures, God breathed and useful for teaching, then why are we not reading all of it, studying all of it, learning all of it? Instead, we're just picking these small bits and pieces that we've heard and we choose to hang on to it. So I always think of, again, um, Hmm. one that comes up all the time regarding homosexuality is in Leviticus Hmm. where it calls it an abomination. Right. But again, if you look at the Hebrew word, that same word is used multiple places. So if you're going to choose to pick this one as the abomination that still is in effect, that's still, you know, off limits for all people for all time, then you got to also look at all the other ones. I technically say abomination as well. Yeah. Um, But instead of like digging in and looking at it, we just pick like, oh, well, somebody told me that. So I'm going to hold on to that one. Right. And that's that's dangerous. It's dangerous too, because if you don't know where the information that you're getting is coming from and why it's the thing that's being focused on. We become just puppets that are being manipulated. If you can point to, you know, in our cult, our particular culture has decided to make two issues, the divisive issues between if you're a good faithful Christian and if you're some like apostate, that's homosexuality and that's abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, And so people are doing everything that they can to say, well, the Bible says this, this, and this, but two of the issues that the Bible is is the most silent about have become the biggest, most divisive issues in our current climate today. I can't have a conversation with a Christian without those one of one or two of those ideas coming up. And I, I think that's an important 
thing to point out when people are having a debate to say, well, why is this so important to you? You know, why is Jesus talking about it? I can't (laughs) like point to where Jesus is really teaching about this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if this is your experience either, but as someone, I think that you studied in seminary from my memory, because we went to the same seminary uh, that you studied more like of the Hebrew Bible. Am I correct? Yes. What was your master's is an old Testament. Old Testament. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, What are some of the focuses that you learned there? Because for my upbringing, it was a heavy focus on Paul. So the like 80s and 90s Christians was Paul's letters. They didn't say, oh, Paul's the guy. But that's what we learned a lot about. And then there was a shift to Jesus, but not necessarily his teachings, more his like, you know, divine stuff. So what did it what did it look like for you to focus for you growing up in a similar tradition on the Hebrew Bible? I went in actually as going for my master's of divinity first and like going to a Christian college growing up in church. I thought like, I know the Bible this is going to be great. Yes. And then I sat in my old Testament classes first and I was like, well, even though I studied this in like Bible class in college or whatever, I know nothing about the old Testament. You know, I grew up at a church that like preached from the lectionary. So the pastor would be like, we go through the whole Bible every three years. There are large swaths of scripture that are not in the lectionary. Yeah. Um, and even if they pop up, most pastors choose the gospel over it. Mm. So for me, I just, I just thought like, there's a lot of really messed up stuff in here and I don't have the tools to unpack it. Yeah. So that's why I, like I sh- shifted tracks completely and was like, I need to really focus on the old Testament and figuring out what does this mean for me, for people? Why is it in there? You know? I love that. Is there yeah. like a, it's like a story that, that connects for you or that connected for you back then that just like captivated you and you were like oh my god I didn't even know this kind of thing existed in the bible oh my gosh yes well like what started <laughs> it all was in uh in the second creation account so when god god makes a first human and is like hey this is not good for that human to be alone let's make a second human yeah and of course in our english bibles translated as helper mm. which has been used in so many ways to make women subservient, less than helpmate to their spouse, man, head of the household. Yes. Uh, so that was one of the first texts that I looked at uh, when I started to look at the Hebrew and the words translated as helper are these two words. It's Ezer Konegdo. So the word Ezer actually means power strength. So it's used like 21 times in scripture mm. uh, when somebody needs help. And it's usually when Israel is asking God for help. So God is the Ezer right? Yes. So that doesn't seem very weak or subservient to me if God is the other. Right. <laughs> so uh, that's part of it. And then the other part of it is connecto, which is a couple of conjunctions together, which mean like, like, as according, corresponding. So like the best translation of Ezra connecto would be a power like it facing it. Something wow. that is compatible, mutual, um, which comes out in this word helper, uh, but has been taken to mean not a strength coming to help another strength, but as somebody less than like an apprentice who's lower than, and like that shifted everything for me. I can't even, that is a bomb. (laughs) That's that's not just like, oh, that's a little bit different than I heard it. That's a bomb. That's like you, you intentionally translated a word based on your, whatever agenda you wanted to get across to perpetuate the idea that women are less than men. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, these are these have societal implications. It's not just, you know, people can be like, oh, that's just in the church. 
the Christian church, Christian, Protestant, Catholic has dominated most of the world for about 1800 years. So not, not just in terms of its own little segment of society, it's been religion. So, I mean, it's been state government. It's, it wasn't until probably the enlightenment that we started to see that there was a separation between the governing bodies of the, of a state or, or a country and religion. It wasn't until, you know, the 17th, 18th centuries um, that we started to see that happen. So like, you've got this, this scripture that everyone knows this story and the woman is the helper, not the, the one of same power and ability facing you. That is a right. bomb. And, and there's, there's another one right after it. Yes. In, yes. In, uh, in chapter three. So the serpent Eve gets this bad reputation. She was manipulated and then she manipulates her husband and she's the source of all evil. Yeah. But again, this is where like, again, Hebrew learning Hebrew changed everything for me. Yes. So Hebrew's a gendered language. So like if I'm talking to my sister, I use feminine singular. If I'm talking to my sister and my mom, feminine plural. But like as soon as you join the conversation, I switch to masculine plural because there's a guy in the space, right? So, so I so re real quick, sorry. That means sorry. to cover everyone, you switch it to masculine. Switch it to masculine. Yeah. Gotcha. So when you look in Genesis 3 at what the serpent is saying, the serpent actually speaks in the masculine plural. So if the serpent is only talking to Eve, only tricking Eve, he would have just been like feminine singular, you Ooh. girl. But he's saying you all, all of you here. And there's a guy in the space of its masculine plural. So that changes again, things again too. So Eve is talking, engaging with the serpent, but Adam is right there too. He's a silent partner and he doesn't intervene. He just like lets it all go down. Um, so wow. what does that mean for him? And, and really who's to blame there? And yes. forever, the blame has just solely been on Eve. Right. Well, yeah, then she gets cursed with all these things and she, <laughs> and she deserves it because, you know, she's the one that lured Adam. Right. Oh, wow. What a wild, what a wild, I, again, something you would never know if you didn't know the original language or study it in that way. And I, I wonder how much learning the Bible after it being translated through you know, different perspectives and, and uh, all those kinds of things has really made it so that for millennia, people are continuing to play out these old power dynamics that hurt people so, so much. Are there any places in the Hebrew Bible that we see women rising to a place of power in a way that people would be surprised to hear? Yeah, one of my favorites is Judges and Judges 4. There's a story of Deborah, and she's like a military commander. And the guy who's running the army comes to her for advice. And like she's leading Israel into battle. Mm. And I just wonder, like, where, why have we not heard her story preached, you know, from yeah. the pulpit? And I can't remember every sermon I've heard, you know, in 40 years, but, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but like, I, I think I'd remember if I had heard about a military hero who was a woman, you know, or you would think, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, I never heard that one either. <laughs> right. Or even like a, a couple of years ago, I got to preach on Easter. It was part of that women's series and looking at the women who were at the tomb of Jesus resurrection. Yes. Like we don't hear it from their perspective. We hear it like Peter who ran and confirmed it was all true. You know, like that's another story that's missing. Yes. And like, 
I don't know, God picked them, this group of women who are bankrolling his ministry, yeah, uh, right. who are really involved, who aren't named a lot of other places. I'm like, but they were there at the resurrection. Yes. I'm like, where's, where's their story? Yeah. It's a wild thing to know that within the text that's been used to subjugate women is this, is these, the stream of stories that are showing how powerful women are and how essential they are for just men to even like be able to think straight, never mind uh, help. <laughs> you know, one of the things I've noticed is as I participated in leadership in church, in the church universal, um, was that a lot of white churches tend to focus on the, the Christian scriptures or the New Testament. And a lot of the black churches that I had uh, come in contact with focused on the Hebrew Bible um, or what people call the Old Testament. And I wonder if, you know, our upbringing in mostly white spaces was this focus on men being in charge, specifically through the lens of Paul, who said, you know, it's better, you know, to be celibate, it's better to all this sort of stuff. And we got sort of head knowledge, whereas the Hebrew Bible focuses a lot more on storytelling uh, and, and heroes and villains and like help, you know, there's all sorts of storytelling in a way that the New Testament doesn't do. It's just a very different way of writing. I don't know if you've noticed any of that or if you have thoughts about how women play into that or just in general. That's, I think, why I attach so much to the Old Testament too. Like, especially now in our culture, doesn't seem to connect well with scripture. Like there are so many stories in there that are still our stories. Yeah. Like even the stories of, of trauma that we're talking about, about David and Bathsheba or about David's kid Tamar who's raped by her brother. Like these are stories that are still happening that could really connect with us and help even show us like, how do we walk with somebody through trauma and healing? Right. You know, right. these are the places that we have the opportunity to speak into, to show like, where was God in this? Where do I still find hope in this? Um, and those aren't the stories that we're telling. No, they're, they're not. They're not. What about that story about Tamar? What is it that you find to be like, a hopeful message that or something that people can connect to the way the world operates today. Well, when it happens in the story, uh, right after it happens. So Tamar gets pushed out her out of her brother, Amnon's house, who just raped her pushed out in the street and she stands in the street and she rips her garments and starts to cry. And her other brother comes alongside her and he says to her, like, don't worry about it. He says, don't take this to heart. And he just like ushers her out of the street into the space. Mm. And then the Bible says, David was angry and then the story just moves on. And I just think like in this story, how often have we been like her brother Absalom, who's like, don't cry. You don't worry about it. Move on. It's going to yes. be fine. Yes. And we, we try to just fix it for somebody and not walk with them. <sighs> or how many times have we been like David? We get angry, but then David does nothing. Mm. And so the, the situation is too complicated. We can't get involved. We're upset, but we don't do anything. Mm. But instead in the story, like could we have sat with her in the street as she tore her garments? Like, is mm. that where the people of God should and should be? Yeah. Yeah. That's really powerful. It's, I mean, it's, uh, it's challenging because it points this finger right back at us where we're, we're often putting people in those positions and then we're leaving them there to suffer alone. Mm -hmm. When my experience of the scriptures is a call for people to always be where the suffering is, you know? Um, and if you're the one suffering, there's this, uh, you know, invitation to hope in 
this community of faith. You know, and I, it's unfortunate when we hear unfortunate, it's not the word. It's messed up. It's beyond messed up because we, we absolutely need each other. And the, the community of faith that has let so many down, and there's a reason that so many in our generation are like, peace, I'm done, including myself, um, are, have left is because of those kinds of experiences. And I wonder what it will look like going forward as someone like yourself, who's still a pastor, who's still, you know, pushing to, to call those communities to their highest ideals. Uh, I think it's pretty essential that these are the stories that are told, you know, yeah, there, there's an, and there's another like Easter egg hidden in the story too. Yes. Um, let's hear it. I love the Easter Hebrew. eggs. <laughs> um, so it describes the garment that Tamar is wearing that she rips and I'm going to forget the Hebrew words. Um, but it's the same ones that are used in the story of Genesis and the story of Joseph, who has the coat of many colors. Yes. It's the same word as that coat of many colors, as that technicolor dream coat that right. Joseph's given by his dad. Right. right? Um, and you think of Joseph, whose coat was taken and bloodied by his brothers, betrayed by his siblings, left for dead in the same way that Tamar was. Wow. But in his story, there's redemption in his story, in his story, God does not forget Joseph. Hmm. And so that's the hope that I hold on to that Tamar in her technicolor dream coat, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> has this hope that her story too can be redeemed. Ah, I love that. I love that. As someone who's had to navigate power structures that weren't set up for you, uh, are these the stories that you've like gone back to to keep going what what has driven you personally to keep moving with this call that you felt that you need to pursue i keep finding it's these little easter eggs and hidden pieces in scripture that keep me curious like i growing yeah. up in church i don't think i wasn't taught to be curious about it or to ask questions it was more like just have faith keep moving on god said bible says it i believe it yeah, that does Let's it. Do it. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I've, I'm kind of a person. I question everything. Yeah. And I just, I now believe in a God that's not afraid of those questions. Yeah. You know, I think God made us to be curious and I don't think he's panicking like, shoot, she found it. She found it. Now. <laughs> like it's all going to come crumbling down. You know, um, I, I just want to keep asking questions and I keep digging and it's scary. And at some point I have to take the leap. Like it doesn't, resolve and it doesn't make sense. Um, but I'm just, I stay curious about it and yeah. I, I want to know more about it. I love that. It made me, when you said the thing about God being scared of our knowledge or what we achieve or learn brings me my mind to the story of the tower of Babel that, um, you know, the message that I always sort of received was that knowledge equals bad knowledge not just knowledge, not knowledge of good and evil and all that stuff like our judgment is bad, but knowledge in general, we're supposed to like not be able to achieve certain heights because God's somehow afraid of us and what we can achieve. Is there anything about that story that might be different there, than what people have received? <laughs> there is. I'm so glad you asked. So in that story, they say, we're, let's try to make a name for ourselves. And it, the story of Babel is right in between the story of Noah. So Noah has three sons, Ham, Shem, Jepheth. The Shem means name. Mm. So God, and that's who's going to inherit like the blessing in Noah's family. Yes. So in this story, God has already picked where his name is and how his name is going to be made great. 
Yeah. And then you have people who are trying to build a name for themselves. And so that's the core of the story. It's that ego again of like, we want to make a name for ourselves. We don't want to trust God and God's name and God's plan. We want to do it ourselves. Yes. So it's more that core ego trip than like knowledge and equality with God. I well, think. I, that's really solid. And I, that also brings up something about the idea of taking the Lord's name in vain. I had this conversation with my daughter yesterday. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the way that I have internalized it. That uh, if someone says, oh my God, that that is not what, that's not what it means. That's how I grew up too. Like, I don't swear, don't say God's name. I remember being afraid, like, shoot, did I say God's name appropriately? Am I, you know? <laughs> and I was like, well, just first, the first things first, God is not God's name. And when, right. when there's a story about when God is asked who, you know, what, what is God's name? Like, what's your name? Who should I say sent me? You can't even pronounce it. <laughs> like right. it's the sound of the wind. So like that, the idea is different. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. The words there say to carry, don't carry God's name lightly. Yeah. And that means like to bear God's name. And I wish more Christians would see it that way because we are, you know, God's firstborn got the inheritance of God's person, God's image. We are bearing God's name to everybody. Yes. And I think it means you don't carry that responsibility lightly. Yes. That's what that commandment means. So you can say the F word, the S or like whatever. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's what it's talking about because no. those words also didn't exist then, <laughs> uh, but it, it talk it should be taken seriously as our call to bear God's name with responsibility that we're bearers of God's image to the world. Yes, which is a much more powerful message than don't say, oh, my God, okay. um, you know, uh, it really it cheapens something that people, you know, again, it's all the context helps us to understand this. Right. And so if you go about the world and you're saying I am a son or a daughter or a child of God, and I've come as a witness to that experience and what you end up doing is harm to the people that you're you're witnessing to or anything like that that's carrying the name of god in vain am i absolutely correct? yes absolutely ah yes. so much better <laughs> i do love that you know for my kids are so endlessly curious about it now i'm not raising them in the church anymore but i think it's such a valuable thing for them to understand that so much of our culture in america and so much of western culture has been shaped by the, the morality that people have ripped out of what they say is from the Bible. Um, and I wonder, you know, how you see that playing out in church or you raising your own kids. What does it look like to teach these stories that a lot of us grew up with where it's, you know, God commits genocide or, or there's Noah, you know, there's all these things. What does that look like for you now, you know, talking to kids about these stories? That for, for my, my son is nine, almost nine and in third grade. And that's been a real challenge for me um, because I do think about scripture perhaps a little bit differently than a, a lot of people from our tradition. I do hold it a little more loosely. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to us reading about the creation account, for instance, you know, Genesis one, I see Genesis one as a beautiful poem and poems, as we know, are not literal, they're figurative. Right. It's written in beautiful Hebrew poetry. And mm. the point is that we're made by God. God calls us good. Um, and those are the things I want him to take out of that. Mm. Um, 
can he believe in evolution? 100%. I don't think the Bible wasn't written to be like historical science, scientifically accurate right. history, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I don't want him to hold it in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. That's so important. It's funny because I find that, you know, the Bible, as you and I both know, is filled with stories of violence and sex and all sorts of things that are not necessarily appropriate for children. <laughs> yet we get all bent out of shape about what movies they might watch because oh my god <laughs> they might have some violence in them uh when we're or teaching... wizards wizards are the even worse <laughs> harry potter is the harry devil. potter <laughs> <laughs> but that we are we don't take very seriously the idea that kids are being brought up to think that god is bipolar mm -hmm. because you know god is violent towards us i talked to my kids about um how God repented in the story of Noah. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you have talked to your kids about? What does that look like when, you know, wait, God doesn't make mistakes. What does it mean that God doesn't make mistakes, but God repents? What, is, what does that look like? I think to teach him to pray means that we also can teach him that God can change God's mind or that mm. we can influence God's mind. So I'm open to that. And like in the story of Noah, um, which I don't know if you've read it in the Jesus storybook Bible, but that's a I good have, version of it. I have. Yes. So yeah, yes. I remember. Yeah. Um, so the key to that story for me is the word that's used for rainbow is actually the word that's used for a bow. Yeah. Um, and when you picture a rainbow where the bow is pointing, it's pointing up and it's God saying, I won't commit violence against you again. Like it, it's just God saying like, I don't have this anger toward you. You know, I, I point it back at myself. Yeah. Um, so that's the point of those kind of stories for me. And, and I have honestly, I've shielded him from a lot of those stories in scripture at this point, because we don't watch, we don't watch violent TV shows. So I'm not yeah. going to tell him a, a story about a guy <laughs> who waltzes his son up and puts him on an altar to sacrifice him, you know, the story no. of Abraham and Isaac. Yes. Um, even when we talk about Jesus, like I don't talk about nails going in his hands and piercing yeah. his side and blood gushing out. Like that's that I don't deem that appropriate for an eight-year-old at this point. <laughs> And, and, you know, what, do, what does he need to know about God? I think he needs to know. I think God created everything. I got, I think God created him and loves him and values him and can be a help to him when he feels stressed out and in trouble. And mm. like, that's what I want him to know about God. Mm, I love that because I remember being eight years old uh, and being terrified of God. And also, and I've talked about this to a couple of people on the podcast, being terrified of God and also believing that God loved me deeply, like a, you know, like I was God's child that will mess up your mind a lot that yeah. will do a, a number on uh what you the way that you develop god and loves not, you but god can also send you to hell yeah and will you know mm -hmm. and will 100 do it if you don't think this thing or pray this prayer before you uh pass away you know and it's a beautiful thing to hear that you you know new ways of communicating to children these, you know, these stories or a, a vision of God that is founded in love and a desire for people to thrive and to flourish and not, it, it's just, it's just leaning into flourishing rather than, Hey, watch out. If you, if you do this, you're going to get, you're screwed, you know? Right. Yeah. Do you find that there are a lot of people within your context or within the church world still that lean more into that sort of punishment, vengeful God, what, yeah, and, think, yeah, and yeah, and like, what do those conversations look like for you? 
That's been hard. I'm in a, a new context that I just recently got to our church um, this summer. So I haven't been there very long. So I'm mostly yeah. still kind of listening. Yeah. Um, I, I think a lot of it is still that misunderstanding of scripture and Old Testament. Like that's Old Testament. God was all about works and he was angry. And now in the New Testament, he's not. I'm like, how can you watch Jesus die? And you'd say that Jesus had to die, but you don't think that's violence or, <laughs> you know, that's, a, that's another conversation probably for another day. But, right. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I think that narrative is still heavily in the church and in what other churches have tried to teach my son as well about, about God. Um, so I think it's just slowly kind of asking questions and helping people expand their way of thinking about who God is, who God was in the old Testament, how the people who wrote those scriptures viewed God. Cause I think God appears to us in our own context. So when I use a sermon illustration that involves God and is about a TV show or something like that, I think that's real to me in the same way that it was real to talk about God as a warrior. Cause that was their yes, context. Exactly. You know? so being able to understand those things, I think will help. Yeah, that's good. I, I, I think it's very difficult for people anyone to change their mind when they have been brought up in a particular way of thinking, no matter what it is. And it's scary and disruptive. So what do we do? We, you know, double down on things We're like, it doesn't matter if we have the knowledge or not, you know, you know, someone can look at you and be like, Oh, you're an elitist. You, you went to some, okay. You think your seminary makes you, you uh, a better Christian or whatever. And it becomes this us versus them thing. When I think it, a lot of it has to do with our approach. And I love that you talked about inviting people and asking questions and not, you know, pointing at people and being like, you need to believe this way or else, because that's just perpetuating the same thing that was given to us. Right. And yeah. it's that fear. Like, I think it's Rob Bell that talks about faith. Like we were taught to build it like a brick wall. So if one of the bricks gets loose or like starts to pull out, the whole thing is going to collapse. Right. And so it's built on fear. Like, I don't want to mess with this because it's going to collapse as opposed to seeing it more like a trampoline, which can like bend and move and stretch. Yeah. Um, I mean, God made us clever to grow, to learn, to continue to change. Yes. And that's not the faith that I was brought up with. Wasn't no. capable of bending and stretching. No, it's really not, which is why, you know, uh, I would say that for me, there are some different reasons why uh, I don't connect any longer with that tradition. Um, there's a lot that I still do connect with. Again, you know, I hear these stories and they give me a lot of life, the scriptural stories. And um, I don't deny any of that to be beautiful and, and inspiring. Um, I think for many, it's that, that thinking that if you don't build your, your faith this way, then it, you can't be a part of it. And I do think that's unfortunate because the loss of faith community that's grounded in love and acceptance of people for who they are is an essential part of what we need in our society today. And it is, it is going away in many ways. The church is slowly fading um, due to its inability to spend and stretch, you know? Mm -hmm. And I wonder what that is going to look like. And I'm, you know, I don't know if you have thoughts on that or if you can even say them, but I, um, I think it's important for people to understand the challenges that people like yourself are in. <laughs> to try to make it so that, you know, that there's um, an invitation that remains true, that's always been true for, for people of faith, that, you know, God loves you, you're a part of God's family, we want you here, uh, and not uh, with condition, you know, that's just, uh, yeah, it's quite challenging. Uh, what are some of the things, like, as a pastor, as a woman who's a pastor, that make it 
challenging for you that people might not necessarily know, like some of the challenges that are associated with just your existence as a pastor? <laughs> yeah, it definitely started. So I went to seminary now, I think I started in, I don't know, 2011, maybe 2010. Um, and I started at the QM campus like you did. So I started yeah. in classes where there were a ton of women in those classes in Boston. Right. Uh, but then when I transferred to the main campus for my upper level Hebrew classes, that was definitely not the case. So I was in a room, 50 guys, maybe four women. Um, and I, I remember when I toured that campus, I brought my husband EJ with me to campus and we walked to the student center wow. and one of the flyers on the door uh, was for the seminary wives organization and as a picture as like a clip art picture of a woman in an apron holding a tray full of like steaming hot cookies stop and i'm dead serious so we both like laughed so hard because also ej and he wouldn't be embarrassed if i said this he cooks for us like i don't cook at all he cooks he bakes he does it all <laughs> so he was like i could bake better cookies than that girl on the <laughs> um, but that was like my first sign of like, oh, oh, okay. And I don't want to dismiss like being a pastor's wife and a seminary wife is, has its own set of challenges of and course. you do need support. Of course. But that was just another indicator. Like, okay, I'm, I'm not, I'm maybe a little bit alone here, there's no, you know, and for EJ, the same thing there, we didn't have a good model of what it looks to be like to be a woman pastor and what it looks like for him to be a pastor's husband. Wow. So, so you're, that's, that's wild. Yeah, it is. And in many ways you're starting, you're just paving your own way. This is anytime people are like, it's 2022, you know, we should be, the, I mean, it's not that long ago that women were just given the ability to be ordained in most places. I don't know. What was it in the Nazarene church? Women were ordained from the beginning. So like one of the founding little like bre- major pre- preachers is a woman. So our tradition is theoretically very open and being in new england very open very supportive i've had mostly really good experiences um but there are other things like especially when my son was younger and our kids sat in the service with us we didn't have like separate sunday school or anything during that time so like for us normally i would pack the church bag of like activities but like ej had to do that and ej was the primary caregiver at church yeah and like that that's a flip and I don't know. They're just little things like that or what it is to be a mom and look out and see your kid misbehaving. Not that it's not bad for a dad, but like, I, I felt like so much guilt. Like I shouldn't be up here. I should be doing this. I should be doing that in a way that I don't think men typically think about all those shoulds. No, I think you're absolutely right. That for a guy, there's this, you know, uh, you can, you can just go, it's natural. This is what we do. We, that we're, we're supposed to be up here and we're supposed to be telling people how to think and what to do. (laughs) Um, which I, again is another fundamental shift in the way that I hear you talking about doing church is not, here's, let me tell you what to do and what to think. It's uh, an invitation into curiosity and to think, what if, what if the scriptures are saying this, what does that mean for us? Uh, that is a beautiful shift that would have been really interesting to have grown up with. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. And and people don't always receive it. And that's, I think the bigger challenge for me is to preach on a text where I'm like, look at all this really great stuff. Doesn't this change everything? And then, and then on the way out, people are like, oh, that was so nice. But you know, I, I'm going to keep doing whatever. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, which tells us a lot about what's really happening, you know, when we're coming together and we're, we're, we're inviting, you know, we're, we're like, yeah, tell me, 
talk to me, preacher, give me something to, to deal with, to wrestle with. If I don't like it, then I can just disregard it. You know, it, it really is just one of those things that we do because we've built up all of these protective structures to, you know, this is what I believe. It keeps me safe. And if you're, you're if you're messing with that at all, this brick house is not going to take it. So I've got to just keep it out. You're the big bad wolf, you know, in a lot of ways. And I think that you're when people don't see you as the shepherd that a pastor is trying to be, and instead the person that's trying to mess up their home and tear it apart, uh, I think that sets up a really difficult dynamic for a pastor. Although I will say in some ways you are a big bad wolf, right? As a pastor, your job is to tear down a little bit of what we deem or what we've experienced to be unhealthy ways of internalizing religion. That actually is, uh, you're putting words to something that I felt even when I worked at a college and, and with students and student life, like I want to create a space where it's okay to ask those questions. It's okay to have the wall crumble because we'll walk alongside you together to help you build something back up. Yeah. And I think right. for most people, when they, when their walls have crumbled, they haven't had somebody in the church be like, okay, let's ask the question. Let's read together. Let's find out together. Let's journey through this together. It's mostly like, you're asking questions. We don't have answers to this. Isn't a place for you anymore. And I really want to create a space where like, I'm not offended if you don't believe in God anymore. I'm not offended if you have questions about these texts, like yeah, it's not going to upset me. I love talking through it. Like I, those, those questions don't scare me. I don't think they scare God. And I do want to create a space where it's okay. Right. Can you imagine a creator of the cosmos that's afraid of a question? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it really is. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope this conversation inspired new thoughts within you. It definitely did for me. Um, until next time, my friends, peace.